Hello, welcome to Stump Death in Taxes. This is Meep, Mary Pat Campbell. I'm a life actuary, which means my background has been in life insurance and annuities. Today I'm talking about what the value of a promise is. Uh, last year, I had an episode in Stump Death and Taxes called MBTA and Pension Obligation Bonds. Uh, MBTA is coming up again, but I'm not going to talk about them specifically today. But last year, I mentioned ASOP 4, which is Actuarial Standard of Practice 4. ASOP 4 is measuring pension obligations and determining pension plan costs or contributions. And notice these are two different things. Measuring pension obligations, this is a balance sheet item. So for a particular point in time that you're looking at the pension plan, boom, what is the value of that promise at this point in time? Actuarial present value, okay? And that means various things. So for the cash flows in the future that we're promising right now, how much is that promise worth as of this particular point in time? So that's your pension obligation. Now there's other aspects. What are the pension plan costs or contributions? Those are cash flows. So we have to figure out and we, I mean, pension actuaries. I am not a pension actuary to be sure, but I do have experience with annuities, which look a lot like pensions, don't they? Anyway, um, so the contributions is how much money do we need to be putting in at particular points in time or over a specific period that need to be put in to help fulfill those future obligations. And that's kind of different. So that's more of an income statement or budgeting or statement of cash flows perspective. So we've got flows and then we've got snapshots. Now, ASOP 4 has been very contentious because there's a lot of different ways to measure that obligation. Um, and there's a lot of different assumptions because it's, you know, it's not certain. It's the future. Um, and how much, let's just think in terms of the contributions and also the outflows. There's a lot of uncertainty just in what the outflows are going to be in the future. Um, let's just forget about, we, we don't even know the size of the cash flows going out because a lot of these promises are based on something with regards to the final salary, for example. And we don't know what their final salary is going to be. Uh, sometimes the cash flows are based on cost of living adjustments, based on what the inflation has been, and we don't know what future inflation is going to be. So there's all sorts of uncertainties on what the cash amount is going to be. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing, and this is, of course, the actuarial part, um, most of these promises are based on the lifetime of the retired employee. So when they retire, so we don't know what age they actually will retire at. That's one uncertainty. Um, when they retire, 
it's guaranteed for their lifetime. So we don't know how long they're going to live. So that's the actuarial part. And we have different mortality tables. And, and sometimes there's guarantees for if there are, if there's a spouse or other beneficiaries, there may be death benefits, maybe or maybe not. Um, so those are uncertainties. So those are aspects of the future cash flows that are uncertain. Okay, so that's part of the promises that are uncertain. Then if we have to fund the pensions of how much money do we need to put in to uh, fund those? Well, the big lever, the biggest lever that goes into this funding is the discount rate or the assumed return on the investments that you put in there. We don't know how they will do. And there's a lot of very risky assets in pension portfolios. And uh, that has been the biggest contention. For the longest time, the median or the average, doesn't matter which, uh, the mean, um, assumed rate of return on those assets, which were also used to value that liability, was 8%. And now it's been coming down to about 7% or 7.5%. Um, I haven't looked recently, um, that still has been considered fairly high by a lot of people because that's very risky. You can't guarantee that's what you're going to get, especially with risky assets. And, you know, for me, who had been working in fixed annuities at the beginning of my actuarial career, we weren't, we weren't allowed, well, we weren't guaranteeing 7% or 8% when, when I was coming in in the early 2000s or mid 2000s, to be sure. And the guarantees were coming down every year on our fixed annuities. Um, and of course, they've come down to the lowest ever in 2020. And yes, the interest rates have been coming back up. There are strains there, but that's the day job. So I'm not talking about that. Uh, in any case, those of us who worked in the fixed annuity space, we couldn't compete with the kind of promises that, say, public pensions could make. Those in private pensions, um, because of the strains of what they could actually support, and of course, the sponsors of the private pensions of the single employer defined benefit uh, pension plans, um, you know, they realized they couldn't get a little too spicy as it were in how they were structuring these plans. And a lot of those uh, pension plans, of course, have closed. Some have blamed the regulations on uh, making this, but a lot of it is kind of the competitive employment market um, and, uh, Anyway, let's let me not go into that sphere right now. Let me just focus on public pensions and those promises. So the issue has been that public pensions have been able to kind of float away from what I would consider reality and what they say, oh, yeah, we can just uh, value these future promises by discounting at 7%. I'll just use the lower number, 7%, um, and we'll discount those future cash flows at 7%. In the actual reports, and I have looked through a lot of what are called ACFRS, the annual comprehensive, uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, financial reports. And uh, anyway, um, they will have part of the 
actuarial reporting in there. And as part of that, they will give you the base valuation and there's various adjustments if the contributions do not support um, the uh, liability, in which case a risk-free or low risk uh, uh, rate will be used. Then you'll get a blended rate. Most of the valuations though tend to have projections of future contributions that will support the <laughs> the liability no matter how realistic I think that is. But uh, I'm not going to go there either. In any case, in addition to that, whether it's 7% or 7.5% or 7.25% or whatever that discount rate is, you'll often see uh, a valuation of plus or minus one percentage point from that you know, given assumed rate of return. And I want to mention that they will just do that as a flat rate of return, as opposed to say like a yield curve valuation. Um, so those of us who are used to looking at a yield curve of, you know, you have a certain kind of result at 30 years, 10 years, etc. And I'm sorry, I'm about to take another tangent because this is actually kind of important. I have another website, actuarial.news, and I use it. It's very sporadically updated. Sorry. The main thing I use it for is on weekdays, I go to the Treasury Department to look at the daily Treasury par yield curve rates. Um, because there has been a nasty inversion of the yield curve going on. So I'm looking at treasury rates and it goes from one month up to 30 years that I've been looking at these treasury rates. And currently like the 30 year treasury rate. So this is for June 29th, 2023. I'm looking at the 30 year rate and it's 3.92%. And these are kind of the market rates of the treasury constant maturity treasury yields. Uh, so 3.92%, and that's the 30 year rate. But once we start getting shorter and shorter, so like the 20 year is at 4.11%. So notice that's higher. Um, then 10 year is 3.85%. There's some wonky things going on. Seven year is at 3.99%. Um, now we get to five year and it, you, it's not every year that there is a quote because we don't have bonds available at every maturity level. And these are all kind of approximate. A lot of this is done during, uh, using interpolation, by the way. Uh, so the five year is at 4.14%. The three year is at 4.49%. And then it gets kind of crazy when we get down to one year. So one year is at 5.41%. And then at six months, so the half year is at 5.50%. Uh, four months, that's kind of a new one, 5.51%. Uh, three months is 5.46%. The two month is at 5.40%. And one month is at 5.25%. So you can see those very short term bonds are at much higher rates than the long-term bonds. 
so this is very much not level. This is considered an inverted yield curve. And uh, if I had a cash flow at one year, I might uh, discount it at 5.41%. And if I had a longer term uh, cash flow, I would be discounting it at 3.85%. So this is for like a risk-free or low risk um, uh, present value calculation that I would be doing. So this is kind of a standard fixed income perspective, and I might do a spread. This is the kind of thing I would be doing for a fixed annuity analysis or a bond analysis that I'm looking at. But in public pensions, they were doing something where it's level. Okay, fine, it's level. And say it's 7% or 7.5%. Okay, so what's happened with ASOP 4 that went into effect February 2023 is that they're requiring the calculation of a low default risk obligation measure. Now, before, as I said, they had a calculation of a plus or minus one percentage point uh, obligation, and then they would have the unfunded liability portion. And I would, and I used to do this for uh, for myself and for other organizations, I can use that using duration and convexity uh, and its approximations from that plus or minus one percentage point. So this is like using an effective duration, effective convexity, and um, I would use an approximation and it's a, a polynomial approximation to uh, estimate at a different discount rate. The problem is these are very much nonlinear results. So if I start out at 7.5% and I want to actually value it at 4%, that's pretty far away. I would get very different numbers. And this is one of the reasons various stakeholders are freaking out about having to calculate this low default risk obligation measure for public pensions. Now this is, this ASOP 4, Actuarial Standard of Practice 4, applies to all pension obligations. So this would apply to single employer pensions. This would apply to multi-employer pensions. However, the single employer pension actuaries, they don't have to worry about it because that's already the obligation they're calculating for single employer pensions. So they don't have to do anything new. Um, and they are not getting very disparate results between their uh, base calculation for single employer pensions and this low default risk obligation measure. Maybe they do have to check this just to make sure everything's on the up and up. But in general, they're not going to get anything that's very different uh, in the requirements for low default risk obligation measure and what they are required under ERISA. So ERISA is the um, federal law that's covering the employee benefits. It doesn't cover public pension benefits, sorry, um, but it does cover single employer private pensions. Yeah, but for public pensions, it doesn't. So you have the, the pension obligations that have been reported all of these years in their financials. And now there's going to be a new number being reported in the actual reports that will also be showing up in the ACFRS. And they're going to have to explain this somehow. 
Um, I did talk about this again last year, but hey, it's been a year. Let me describe this again, this low default risk obligation measure. And this is how it is described in the ASOP. When performing a funding valuation, the actuary should calculate and disclose a low default risk obligation measure of the benefits earned or costs accrued, if appropriate, under the actuarial cost method used for this purpose. As of the measurement date, the actuary need not calculate and disclose this obligation measure more than once a year. When calculating this measure, the actuary should use an immediate gain actuarial cost method. When calculating this measure, the actuary should select a discount rate or discount rates derived from low default risk fixed income securities whose cash flows are reasonably consistent with the pattern of benefits expected to be paid in the future. And then they give a list of examples, one of which being U.S. Treasury yields, but there's also like munis and some other rates that apply. When plan provisions create pension obligations that are difficult to appropriately measure using traditional valuation procedures, such as benefits affected by actual investment returns, movements in a market index, or other similar factors, the actuary should consider using alternative valuation procedures, such as those described under, you know, other section, blah, blah, blah. For purposes of this obligation measure, the actuary should consider reflecting the impact, if any, of investing plan assets in low default risk fixed income securities on the pattern of benefits expected to be paid in the future, such as in a variable annuity plan. When calculating this measure, the actuary should not reflect benefit payment default risk or the financial health of the plan sponsor. And I'm going to uh, see other than the discount rate or the discount rates, the actuary may use the same assumptions used in the funding valuation for this measure. So they're talking about stuff like the mortality assumption and uh, retirement age assumption and that kind of thing. And then here is the last paragraph in this section. And the section, I'm sorry, is 3.11. Um, so the last paragraph is, the actuary should provide commentary to help the intended user understand the significance of the low default risk obligation measure with respect to the funded status of the plan, plan contributions, and the security of participant benefits. The actuary should use professional judgment to determine the appropriate commentary for the intended user. So this is interesting because this is very new in terms of public pensions and who is the intended user of the actuarial report on public pension plans? Because of course, for public pensions, the intended user of the information of the actuarial valuation is not only going to be, of course, the trustees, of course, the trustees of the public pension fund are going to be the primary intended users of the actuarial valuation. That is an of course. So you need to focus your uh, highest level commentary to them because they are the decision makers. By the way, I want to point out, and this is something that once I learned about it, I, I tried to emphasize this because a lot of people do not know this, and I didn't know this as an actuary until I really dug into it. Actuaries are not the ones 
who are choosing the valuation assumptions. Did you know that? And that includes, that includes the discount rate, which is one of the largest assumptions. And by largest assumption, I mean, it has the most impact. Um, you will often see, and I have seen this, just changing the discount rate from say 7.5% to 7% had huge, like very, very large, like, oh, that's only 0.5 percentage points. That's 50 basis points, but could have millions of dollars in, in terms of impact or even billions, depending on the size of the pension plan in terms of financial reporting. That's very, very large. And if, if it's 7.5 to 7%, imagine the difference between 7.5% or 7% and say 4% or even 5% as the discount rate, which would be the case when they're doing a low default risk obligation measure, because they're not going to be able to use 7.5%. <laughs> Even with what's going on with the Federal Reserve and in increasing interest rates, they're not, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't try to, <laughs> to forecast the future because we have had like huge rises in interest rates before and double digit interest rates for treasuries before uh, in the 1980s, 1970s. So it could happen again. So perhaps they may be seeing interest rates that high, though if they do, if we do, there will be so much other pain going on. Um, yeah, that would be <laughs> out of the fat, into the fire. Um, yeah, out of the frying pan, into the fire. That is going to be something else entirely. And then I'll have to revisit this one more time. Um, and that would be fixing their problem in a way they may not like. Uh, in any case, I will be coming back to this, of course, because there are organizations for the financial officers, for the public pension actuaries to prepare. Um, and you might be thinking, wait, what do you mean to prepare? This is in effect as of February 2023. I'm like, yes, that is correct. However, some of them are doing reports that are using measurement dates that are pre-2023. So they are measurement dates of like, say, December 2022 or um, July 1st or June 30th, 2022. Uh, there is a lot of lag in these measurements for the financial reports. So it's going to take a while before we start seeing these low default risk obligation measures. Um, uh, so they will have time to work out the kind of explanations they're going to see. Um, but the topmost explanation is going to have to be to the pension plan trustees of the kind of decision those pension plan trustees need to make. Uh, so those kind of things the trustees will make is whether or not they should change that valuation interest rate maybe to be closer to that low default risk interest rate. Um, so that there's not huge disparities between those two. So that's one decision that uh, may be made. Another decision that may be made is what is the um, kind of strategic asset allocation or 
kind of what's the riskiness in their asset basket because for the longest time the approach for um public pensions has been hey let's risk on baby because we need to have a higher discount rate when we're doing our valuation you get basically i mean you get rewarded for that in terms of you will have a lower liability value however if no matter what you do with regards to your actual asset allocation you have this low default risk obligation measure hanging over you no matter what your um, investment strategy is perhaps you might want to rethink the amount of risk you're taking on in terms of asset liability management and think of your downside risk. Uh, the longest time I have said, and you know, I don't mind that the pensions are taking on the risk, but that the disparity between kind of the risky valuation, so the high discount value, uh, the high discount interest rate, or the high discount rate, sorry, uh, reflecting riskiness in the assets, and then this low default risk obligation measure. What's, what is the meaning of the difference of those two numbers? Um, we have described it in many ways. Uh, sometimes it's like it's the taxpayer put. <laughs> it's, it's a measurement of kind of the amount of risk that's in that asset basket. Okay. Uh, you know, maybe this is really exposing how much the pension is going to the casino is that something we want to do is that i mean and this is not the kind of explanation that perhaps the taxpayers are going to want to hear about or even the employees and definitely not the retirees uh, they are not going to want to hear this um so i mean i will do a future one where i address the kinds of explanations that are the um people who work in the space are coming up with because i can imagine this is not the kind of explanation they're going to want to put out um i will say one area where pre this asomp something like this occurred and that is with calpers so in calpers uh the way calpers works kind of um, this is a, a huge simplification and yes, you can come in and email me or, you know, if you are a paid subscriber, this is of course, one of the benefits as a paid subscriber, you can leave comments on, uh, my posts, um, or, you know, on, on Twitter, you can always tweet at me. Um, but high level, the way CalPERS works are the different, uh, governments that have plans with, them are told the amount of contributions they have to give each year. And if you are a municipality or whatever that wants to exit CalPERS, what will happen is they will move your plan to what's like their closed plan. And then all of a sudden, the discount rate used for figuring out the contributions drops to something like this low default risk obligation measure. Um, and so I can imagine what will happen is uh some of the explanation that will come out is that this low default risk obligation measure as is as if well if we had to close plans and then had to support it if it was closed which is misleading 
because it doesn't require you to think of it as a closed plan. Um, there's nothing about having a low discount rate versus a high discount rate that requires you to assume that it's an open or a closed plan. It has nothing to do with that. Um, a lot of this from financial economics just has to do with regards to the concept of risk-free pricing. And this is used in options pricing. This is used in all sorts of things. Um, but there's a lot of different ways that you're they're going to have to try to avoid saying something about low risk or risk-free versus what is indisputable is that their asset side is very high risk uh, in terms of a lot of them have been going more into private equity and alternative assets that one wonders and i don't know in some of the cases perhaps the trustees and perhaps their investment managers do have the expertise in the case of the managers to manage and in the case of the trustees to actually provide good governance and oversight in other cases, one wonders if they really do, because we saw this with Dallas Police and Fire, and we've seen this with some other um, some other public pension funds that uh, the trustees really don't have the knowledge to provide good oversight. And in the case of um, some of the investment managers, you can have capture in terms of the professional staff or um, the uh, kind of outsider asset managers in some cases that you have a public pension fund that does not want to go to the legislature or the employers and say, we need higher contributions, which is what, of course, a, a lower discount measure will get you in terms of the math. Um, and there's going to be quite a public finance crunch coming up and nobody is going to want to be asking their governments for higher contributions, even though that might be what is really required. Um, so that's, you know, what is the value of a promise? And if you have these very disparate numbers, this came out, by the way, during the Detroit bankruptcy, and having a higher number for the pension obligations actually may help the public pensions in terms of safeguarding the promises made to them. Because if you're going through a bankruptcy and this is the promise made to you, do you really want a lower number for your public pension fund? Because they might say, okay, this is all we've guaranteed to you. Well, we make sure that fund is up to that mark. And that's the money you will have when the bankruptcy closes versus, okay, we really owe you a higher number. We can't afford to get you to that higher number, but you know you are in the bucket of creditors for us, and we are trying to treat all our creditors, you know, similarly, and you will get a pro rata share. And you know, in a federal bankruptcy, you want to make sure <laughs> that you get your fair share. If it's valued at a lower number, that's not great. You want it valued at a higher number. Um, so th there is an interest for public pension stakeholders to have the value of the promise being made to you accurately reflected 
having it lowballed is not making it safer for you. It's not making it more likely that the promise will be fulfilled. The concept had been for the longest time that, okay, we'll use a high discount rate that will basically lowball the uh, value of the pension promise at this moment in time. It will reduce the contributions that are made at this moment in time. Maybe we will goose the risk in the asset portfolio. However, if there are shortfalls, when the time comes to pay your benefits, that's our taxpayer put. We will just go to the taxpayers or maybe the bondholder put. We'll just go to the taxpayers or issue bonds and we will get those tax uh, tax flows because of course, you know, we have to pay the pension benefits. If we don't pay the pension benefits, there will be lawsuits, yada, yada, or there will be political repercussions. And um, either way, we will end up paying those pension benefits. That was the theory in the past. However, what has actually occurred in terms of through uh, real public finance crunches that came out of the Great Recession. And then now what we're going to see with the baby boomer retirements, and they're basically almost all retired at this point. Not all of them, obviously. A lot of people are working into their 70s, of course, but almost all of the baby boomer generation are of retirement age currently. Um, and this is where the stress on Social Security is coming from. And of course, my generation, Gen X, there's fewer of us. Yes, there are plenty of millennials and there are more millennials than baby boomers because the baby boomers have been dying off, of course. Um, that said, when you have a one to one ratio, it's, it's still hard to support. But what has happened, of course, the Detroit pensioners through the bankruptcy did see some of their uh, pension benefits cut. And that is current retirees in Rhode Island. Uh, some of the pensioners there have seen their cost of living adjustment cut or not there. Uh, we have seen that promises have been altered to retirees, public pensioners while retired. It has been a handful of, it's not been widespread yet. That's a thing. It's I've yet, you know, that, that ominous voice yet. Um, but to the extent some states and some municipalities have been lowballing their pensions and have not been providing full contributions like Illinois, like Kentucky, New Jersey, they are going to be in a world of pain and in short order. Uh, Chicago is notorious and they are seeing that they are running into trouble right now. Then there are other places where they have supposedly been making 100% contributions, like California, CalPERS. They had been making 100% contributions, and yet the funded ratios have not really been improving. They used to be over 100% funded, and then there was erosion, and now they're just treading water. What's up with that? And when this low default risk obligation measure gets reported, and there's going to be a huge difference between that and the headline number or the official funded ratio, there's going to be a lot of explanation that they're going to have to come up with and trying to avoid 
saying that this low default risk obligation measure is a low default risk obligation measure. And they're going to have to try to avoid saying low default risk or low risk or risk free because they don't want to have to say that the official funded is risky. You want to say that's risky? <laughs> and that risk is being observed right now. It's a risky world. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm on the outside as a taxpayer, but also as an actuary watching this occur. So, um, and I'm going to be paying for it too. I'm in New York state. So we supposedly have very highly funded pensions, but when this low default risk obligation measure comes out, I am sure our pensions are not going to look highly funded. And I'm going to probably have to pay for that as a New York taxpayer. And as someone who works in Connecticut and their pensions don't look so hot, it's going to look even worse. I know this. So, yeah, I have skin in the game, <laughs> as it were. Yay. So that's been Stump, Death and Taxes. Talk to y'all another time. Oh, no,